Welcome back to Psychic Crime, and I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And as always, I want to thank you guys for listening. I say this every single time at the beginning. I know it's tedious, but I never ever thought I would do this for this long. I thought maybe my mom and my dad, a couple family members would listen, and my mom and dad don't even listen. It's you guys. So I've been looking over some of these demographics, and wow, the Netherlands, Austria, Antigua, Germany, Bekfiefengist. I mean, take it how you want to. Maybe it's an insult to some of you. Maybe to some of you, it sounds like a good time. It's up to you. Uh, for those of you who don't know what I'm saying, Bekfiefengist means a face that begs to be slapped. So like I said, to some of you it might be an insult. To some of you it might sound like a good time. <laughs> Indonesia. Ireland always slips in and out of here. Luxembourg. Uh, Sweden. I had just said this week, frustrated with the fact that we had an incident where an Asian American reporter covered a white nationalist rally. Of course, American Twitter cancel culture just lost its mind and started calling him a white supremacist, an Asian man, a white supremacist for doing his job as a reporter, covering the news, and they fired him. Yeah, so I said, I quit. Yeah, I quit the U.S. Sweden, you got room for me? Because I want to see what some of this equality stuff looks like because that is not happening here in the United States. So, uh, and during COVID, I fell down a rabbit hole of Scandinavian noir. And at one point I was watching this show and it was not till the last five minutes that the guy said, well, I guess it's time to go back home to Oslo. And I was like, Oslo? Don't you mean like Malmo or Gothenburg? I was like, oh man, I did that thing where people will watch a show and then someone will be like, I need to go back to Toronto. And they'll be like, Toronto? Don't you mean you need to go back to St. Paul? Thinking they were watching an American show that took place in Minnesota and the whole time they were watching a, Can a Canadian show? Yeah, that was me. I guess I just pulled the Scandinavian version of that. I felt so bad. I felt like I was such an asshole. So yeah, I apologize to all of Scandinavia because I mistook Norway for Sweden. That's such a dick move. <laughs> but yeah, I've been watching a lot of Scandinavian TV shows. The Cliff, I absolutely love The Cliff. Iceland, your fairies are insane, supposedly apparently to this show. But yeah, I'm pissed they did Helgi dirty. That was just not right for those of you in Iceland or in Scandinavia who watch The Cliff. So yeah, I am absolutely in love with Scandinavian noir. That is my new go-to. To, I grew up watching uh, British television, United Kingdom, um, my household. So I have all the British subscription services and I was like, hey, let's add this Walter Percents and let's watch the rest of Europe's television. Yeah, I only ended up watching Scandinavian shows. That was it. So I appreciate all of you Thank you so much. You know, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. It's at Geek Flossy. If you want to shout me out, like I said, I take requests for crimes on my Patreon. So if you have any crimes from your country you want to hear, hit me up on my Patreon. So like I said, I absolutely love your support. Seeing all these you and unique countries listening, it really makes me excited. I like the fact that there is a global impact because I appreciate the fact that 
I am getting a wider reach and that's why I tried to cover crimes from other countries and not just the United States. So thank you guys so much. You inspire me to keep looking at other countries and looking at these crimes from a cultural aspect and seeing how crimes are affected in other countries is part of the reason when I did the serial killer that wasn't series, why it showed how the Swedish justice system handled having a false conviction versus how the American justice system did it. So I will try to continue to cover crimes um, in different countries and show how different countries handle things in comparison to how they are handled in the United States. So thank you guys so much and thank you for inspiring me to continue to handle things with cultural competency. So, and I am working on new merch. Um, I, like I said, I've had some health stuff going on, so I haven't been able to do things as fastly as I like. Um, the merchandise that I am working for, I'm working on stuff for Juneteenth. And for those of you who don't really know what Juneteenth is, it is a holiday in the United States. It just became a national holiday. In the black community, we have always celebrated this. It is a celebration of the true official end of slavery versus the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. So I am gonna have some stuff for that. Um, so there is more stuff going on um but like i said i've had some health stuff and i'm in the practice process of starting a practice so it's been a little uh, a lot of stuff going on outside of doing the podcast so just bear with me i'm getting the episodes out it's just you know my schedule is going to be a little off kilter but um i will make up for it in the weeks that i don't have a podcast i will try and do two the next week so just bear with me and i will keep bringing you these episodes so this week we are going to do part one of richard alpert when most people think of ethics or morals they think of rules for distinguishing between right and wrong, such as the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's a cold for professional contact, like the Hippocratic Oath. First of all, do no harm. A religious creed, like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. Or wise things, like the sayings of Confucius. This is a most common way of defining ethics, norms for conduct that distinguish between acceptable and unacceptable behavior. Most people learn ethical norms at home or at school or in church or in other social settings. Although most people acquire their sense of right and wrong during childhood, moral development occurs throughout life and human beings pass through different stages of growth as they mature. Ethical norms are so ubiquitous that one might be tempted to regard them as simple common sense. On the other hand, if morality were nothing more than common sense, then why are there so many ethical disputes and issues within our society. One plausible explanation of these disagreements is that all people recognize some common ethical norms, but interpret, apply, and balance them in different ways in light of their own values and life experiences. For example, two people could agree that murder is wrong, but disagree about the morality of abortion because they have different understandings of what it means to be a human being. Most societies have legal rules that govern behavior, but ethical norms tend to be broader and more informal than laws. Although most societies use laws to enforce widely accepted moral standards, and ethical and legal rules use similar concepts, ethical ethics and laws are not the same. An action may be legal, but unethical, or illegal, but ethical. We can also use ethical concepts and principles to criticize, evaluate, propose, or interpret laws. Indeed, 
In the last century, many social reformers have urged citizens to disobey laws they regard as immoral or unjust. Peaceful civil disobedience is an ethical way of protesting laws or expressing political viewpoints. Another way of defining ethics focuses on the disciplines that study standards of conduct, such as philosophy, theology, law, psychology, or sociology. For example, a medical ethicist is someone who studies ethical standards in medicine. One may also define ethics as a method, procedure, or perspective for deciding how to act and for analyzing complex problems and issues. For instance, in considering a complex issue like global warming, one may take an economic, ecological, political, or ethical perspective on the problem, while an economist might examine the cost and benefits of various policies related to global warming, a environmental ethicist could examine the ethical values and principles at stake. Many different disciplines, institutions, and professions have standards for behavior that suit their particular aims and goals. These standards also help members of the discipline to coordinate their actions or activities and to establish the public's trust or discipline. For instance, the ethical standards govern conduct in medicine, law, engineering, and business. These are what we call govern ethical governing bodies. So in medicine, they have the medical board. In law, they have the bar. Ethical norms also serve the aims or goals of research and apply to people who conduct scientific research or other scholarly or creative activities. There is even a specialized discipline, research ethics, which studies these norms. There are several reasons why it is important to adhere to ethical norms in research. First, norms promote the aims of research, such as knowledge, truth, and avoidance of error. For example, Prohibitions against fabricating, falsifying, or misrepresenting research data promote the truth and minimize error. Second, since research often involves a great deal of cooperation and coordination among many different people in different disciplines and institutions, ethical standards promote the values that are essential to collaborative work, such as trust, accountability, mutual respect, and fairness. For example, Many ethical norms in research, such as guidelines for authorship, copyright and patenting policies, data sharing policies, and confidentiality rules in peer review, are designed to protect intellectual property interests while also encouraging collaboration. Most researchers want to receive credit for their contributions and do not want to have their ideas stolen or disclosed prematurely. Third, many of the ethical norms help to ensure that researchers can be held accountable to the public. For instance, federal policies on research misconduct, conflicts of interest, the human subject protections, and animal care and are used, that are used are necessary in order to make sure that researchers who are funded by public money are held accountable to the public. Fourth, ethical norms in research also help to build public support for research. People are more likely to fund a research project if they can trust the quality and integrity of the research. And finally, many of the norms in research promote a variety of other important moral and social issues, such as social responsibility, human rights, 
animal welfare, compliance with the law, public health and safety. Ethical lapses in research can significantly harm human and animal subjects, students, and the public at large. For example, a researcher who fabricates data in a clinical trial may harm or even kill patients, and a researcher who fails to abide by regulations and guidelines relating to radiation or biological safety may jeopardize their own health and the safety and health of the staff and our students that they are working with or testing their products on. The reason we are bringing this up is we start this with Richard Alpert's time with the cyclobin research study. Now, while we barely touched on this when we talked about Timothy Leary way, way, way earlier, and I will leave a link into the episode I did on Timothy Leary because Alpert works with Leary, we're going to go in depth into the actual cyclobin drug trial. Richard Alpert was born to a prominent Jewish family in Newton, Massachusetts. His father, George Alpert, was one of the most influential lawyers in the Boston area and president of the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad, as well as one of the leading founders of Brandeis University and the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. The youngest of three boys, Richard, as a child, was described as being engaging and loved by all, basically like a family mascot. He went on to receive a Bachelor of Arts degree from Tufts University, his master's degree from Wesleyan University, and his doctorate in psychology from Stanford. After returning from a visiting professorship at the University of California, Berkeley, Albert accepted a department position at Harvard, where he worked with the Social Relations Department, the Psychology Department, and the Graduate School of Education in Health Services, where he became a therapist. He was also awarded research contracts with Yale and Stanford. However, he was most notably known for the work he did with his close friend, Timothy Leary, Dr. Timothy Leary. Having only recently obtained a pilot's license, during this time, Albert was known to fly his plane to Cornicaba, Mexico, where Leary first introduced him to Tenetoctal, Mexico mushrooms, magic mushrooms. By the time Albert made it back to America, Leary had already consulted with Aldous Huxley, who was visiting at MIT. And through Huxley and a number of graduate students, they were able to get in touch with the man named Sandos, who produced a synthetic component of of the mushrooms called cyclobin. From 1960 to 1962, Alpert and Leary administered psychedelics to a wide cross-section of Harvard University students in what became known as the Harvard Cyclobin Project. Now, most people would love the idea of being dosed with hallucinogens for course credits. In a 50-year retrospective of the experiments published in the Harvard Cripson, One student was quoted as saying, my recollection was that you could choose between taking the final or participating in a drug trial. Not many people chose to take the final. That is absolutely horrible. As a clinician, that is so bad. So when you do a trial, there has to be controls. So you have to have people who, you know, don't know what they're taking and people like nobody should know what they're taking. It should be a blind trial and you should never be like, okay, you're going to take a drug and, and they really they they should know kind of what it is but it should never be like okay do you want to take hallucinogens or do you want to take your final like that's absolutely not how you get people to sign up for a drug trial it, they should know it's a drug trial but there shouldn't be like compensation in that manner it shouldn't be like you get an a for taking my drug trial that's 
absolutely horrible. That's This was like the Wild West of research back then, and a lot of bad things happened like this. On the surface, this process seems innocent and almost childless, childishly naive compared to the storm of cultural clashes and drug wars that were to follow. In practice, these experiments were a microcosm of things to come, not just the fur that they brought down from the academic establishment, but from the biases that they consciously or unconsciously embraced, and the ever-present issues of accountability and research standards that per persist to this very day. It's on the surface, now, these two were eventually fired is definitely not news to anybody. More often, what is overlooked is the fact that the quantities of cyclobin and LSD in question were often legitimately obtained from international pharmaceutical sources such as Sandoz before being catapulted over the laboratory walls to enthusiastic young Americans. Basically, they used the drug trial to distribute drugs illegally. So this is my problem with both of these men at this point. They went and they took legitimate research as an excuse to distribute drugs. And that's when it goes from being legitimate research to just an excuse to indulge in psychedelics. While nominally intended for medical research purposes, staggering amounts of psychedelics made their way into these stashes and others like them into public consumption. It is not hard to draw parallels to these other substances that have escaped from labs and became street drugs, or to see this as a warning for once again bright future of psychedelic medicine. Leary and Alpert's experiments were by no means limited to cyclobin or to the two of them in an oversight capacity. Also, in the initial project board were Rolf Metzner, Frank Barron, David McKelland, and their direct, who was also their direct supervisor, and Aldous Huxley, the author of The Door of Perception and Brave New World, who had helped Humphrey Osmond coin the term psychedelic itself. Nor were they confined solely to the hundreds of Harvard students they formally or informally um, at campus parties provided with substances. As experiments with prison inmates at Concord during the same period happened. But what began at the Harvard Cyclobin Project in the first place? A 1963 article in Look Magazine detailed the scandal. Supported by the Harvard Center for Research in Personality, Richard Alpert, with his associate, Dr. Timothy Leary, a lecturer on clinical psychology, set out to investigate new drugs. Many scientists had studied hallucinates hallucinogenics before 1960, but most of them were physicians interested in determining psychological effects or in using the drugs to reproduce under laboratory conditions the symptoms of mental illness. LSD particularly was widely employed in the early 1950s to cause psychosis in normal patients. Now think about this, they are running uncontrolled drug trials and handing out a mass Drugs that were used in controlled situations to make the, to reproduce the effects of psychosis. How dangerous is this? And there were some hope that these experiments could point to an understanding of the chemical basis of schizophrenia. Unfortunately, these early efforts to produce little new, little new or more valuable information came from these efforts. The biochemistry of drugs remains to be worked out and the dream of understanding the chemical nature of mental illness just never materialized. Today, there is very little medical research with hallucinogens, 
but the medical studies indirectly gave rise to another kind of interest in drugs. Many of the people who served as subjects were overwhelmed by the experience. Some, especially artists, students, and creative writers, called it the most significant experience of their lives. A few set about popularizing hallucinogens in magazine articles and books and stimulated considerable non-professional curiosity. The bulk of the medical evidence indicated that LSD, mescaline, and cyclobin were not physically dangerous. Certainly, they could not cause addiction. There were, however, alarming reports of temporary acute mental damage that resulted from taking the drugs and hints that unsupervised use of them could lead to permanent adverse psychological changes. For example, in one of the early experiments at Harvard Medical School, a student volunteer subject under LSD almost, was almost killed when he walked into rush hour traffic on Huntington Avenue in Boston. He believed he was God and nothing could touch him. Descriptions of the drugs stressed such effects as heightened perceptions, increased awareness of one's surroundings, tremendous insight into one's own mind, accelerated thought processes, and intense religious feelings, and even extrasensory phenomenon such as mystic rapture. Separate from the campus activities of the Harvard Cyclobin Project, but still part of the team's overall behavioral research, was the Concord Prison Experiment, which took place from 1961 to 1963 at the state prison in Concord, Massachusetts. While giving drugs to inmates who usually have to smuggle them in might seem counterintuitive, the experiment was actually quite unique. Criticisms abound about the scientific rigor and accuracy of the study. Often it's related to the fact that researchers dose themselves along with the prisoners. Um, so they felt that they were creating a sense of equity in the experiments, but it actually invalidates the results since uh, you're high, so you can't actually <laughs> uh, you know, report with great accuracy what you see. The large decreases in recidivism reported by the original experiment have not yet held up to scrutiny, but the notion of the rates of crime perpetuated by the repeat offenders could be impacted by personal, spiritual, and introspective experiences occasioned by psychedelics was unquestionably worth exploring. No, no, it's not. I'm sorry. I'm a substance abuse clinician. I absolutely believe it is a horrible idea to, to give people psychedelics in order to get them to... No. Oh, wow. Okay, many, many people who are repeat offenders are repeat offenders because they come from homes that have deeply, that have caused deeply ingrained childhood trauma. Basically, all they are doing is they are giving them a chemical coping mechanism. They are giving them a way to self-medicate their trauma. Just because it's not an addictive way to self-medicate their trauma does not mean it's changed. And as psychiatrists, I'm very surprised they do not realize this. So, no. No, that's an absolutely horrible idea. They may not be reoffending, but it's only because they're self-medicating with psychedelics. So bad idea, horrible idea. Psychedelics have always had a close relationship with our conceptions of the divine. Larry and Alpert's Harvard Cyclobin Project may not have had in any way uh, many concrete scientific objectives, but they could still experiment. 
organized by theology grad student Walter N. Punk under the pair supervision in 1962, the Marsh Chapel Experiment, also known as the Good Friday Experiment, was in retrospect comically rife with confirmation bias. Giving divinity students psychedelics, it could be argued, could hardly produce results other than religious experiences in a population so admittedly predisposed to them. This episode was also an early indicator of an ongoing problem in psychedelic research. Participants could very easily tell who had been administered a psychedelic and who had been given a placebo, influencing the quality of the experiment. Well, yeah, they're psychedelics. Like you're automatically going to know the person who's seeing God obviously got a psychedelic. The person who obviously is just sitting there like, uh, when is this supposed to kick in? Like, what is this supposed to? They obviously got nothing. According to the author, Michael Poland, How to Change Your Mind, one subject who experienced a bad trip had to be removed and treated for religious hysteria with a shot of Thorazine. So yeah, like, and why would you give LSD to religious students? Their, theology students are looking for the divine. They are looking for the voice of God. You give them hallucinogens, bam, there's the voice of God. So exactly, confirmation bias. You are specifically giving hallucinogens to people who are looking for the voice of God. Like, <sighs> I don't understand how these people were actually, actually therapists clinicians. I don't understand how anybody took them seriously at all. This series of experiments was an essential part of the birth of 60s counterculture. The objectivity and accuracy of any actual data collected by the researchers is questionable at best and continued to degrade after their departure from formal academia. The founding of the International Federation for Inter Internal Freedom and Vichuante Project simultaneously with the Harvard Cyclobin Project extended the infamy beyond American borders. More easily quantifiable than any scientific result is the sensation they caused. LSD and other psychedelics were already slipping through the cracks in the mainstream American society. What followed the Harvard Cyclobin Project was an explosion, coinciding with changing culture and an unwinnable war, and brought on by equal parts hope for the future of these substances, ego, sensationalism, and fear. But by this time, Alpert had already become disillusioned with academia and even described himself as feeling caught in a meaningless game. The two, Alpert and Leary, relocated and tried to continue their experiments unsupervised from a private mansion in Millbrook, owned by Billy Hitchcock, an heir to the Mellon fortune. Famous poets, musicians, and intellectuals of the time, such as Allen Ginsberg, Maynard Ferguson, The Grateful Dead, Marshall McCullen and Ken Kenzie came from across the country to be part of what was going on there. Although they remained lifelong friends, the two eventually began to part ways spiritually and philosophically, as Leary continued to spread his mantra of turn on, tune in, drop out, while Alpert increasingly found his purpose in the Hindu ethics of serving others. Now, shortly before they started to part ways, what they did is they took the chemists that they used for the cyclopin drug side, drug trials and they had them make them LSD that they sold through the Hell's Angels. Now that can't go bad, can it? Of course it did. Um, like I said, if you check, if you go back and listen to the Timothy Leary, you can see where the issues came with the Millbrook compound and selling LSD through Hell's Angels. 
you can, this is where they part ways. You can see the ridiculousness that Timothy Leary got up with as he became a talking head for a movement he gave no fucks about. He was just there to get high and get laid. So, like I said, I will leave the link so that you can check up on the Timothy Leary episode. And then next time you can check in for part two of Richard Alpert as he becomes Ram Dass, the guru who launched a thousand cults. And in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things. <laughs>